There it is. The red planet Mars. For over 2,000 years, the symbol for war. There's no knowing what tonight's pictures may show. We may learn more about Mars in the next few minutes. You'll be the next to advance science. And maybe us. Right into oblivion! Today's dead idea, the canals of Mars. The idea that the surface of the planet Mars is crisscrossed with lines so long and straight they could only be constructions of an advanced extraterrestrial civilization. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by my lovely wife, Rachel Westoff, whose nightly squinting and straining through a giant lens has convinced her that my eyebrows are slightly uneven. <laughs> are they? Huh. <laughs> like the left one is bushier? Yeah, it is. I, I don't know. It's just slightly. It's a little close to the truth, though. She doesn't say uneven, but she does really get on my case about the slightest extra-long eyebrow hair or out-of-place hair growing between my eyebrows, which often I cannot see in the mirror, even when I look really close and stare at it for a very long time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it makes me feel like I'm taking crazy pills, but meanwhile, she can't understand why I can't see it, because it's so plainly obvious to her. But basically, it's about perception, right? And it's not actually all that different from the situation of late 19th and early 20th century observers of the planet Mars. We're obsessed by its uneven eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) It comes down to a question of perception and what the human mind does when attempting to draw detail out of a small, blurry, wavering image seen through a not-that-great telescope, especially when the stakes are high, when your reputation as a scientist depends on it, and when your imagination is fired up with the hope of discovery. That's what our show today is going to focus on. Perception, or rather, the frailty of perception. That sounds like a lot of excuses about your eyebrows, man. It does. (laughs) I know, I need to step up my game a notch. Mm -hmm. Today's dead idea is the canals of Mars, which turned out to be fabulously wrong. Basically, the idea was that the surface of Mars was crisscrossed with lines so long and straight that they could only be artificial constructions, i.e. canals. And here is how they are described by... Percival Lowell, the most ardent proponent of this theory in his 1906 book, Mars and Its Canals. Lowell writes, Not everybody can see these delicate features at first sight, even when pointed out to them, and to perceive their more minute details takes a trained as well as an acute eye, observing under the best conditions. When so viewed, however, the disk of the planet takes on a most singular appearance. It looks as if it had been cobwebbed over, suggestive of a spider's web seen against the grass of a spring morning. A mesh of fine reticulated lines overspreads it, which with attention proves to compass the globe from one pole to the other. The chief difference between it and a spider's work is one of size, supplemented by greater complexity, but both are joys of geometric beauty, for the lines are of individually uniform width, of exceeding tenuity, and of great length. These are the Martian canals. So I've got to say, maybe my untrained, my eyes too untrained, mm-hmm. and maybe I just live in a different landscape, but I'm used to thinking of the grass in the spring morning as being green, not kind of a dusty red. Well, yeah, where is he? That's <laughs> another interesting thing that I'll get into. See... Back in those days, the way they looked at Mars and the way they saw it through their telescope, I don't know what the deal was with the colors and the light, but they thought of Mars as being composed as partly reddish ochre regions and partly blue-green regions. Yeah, Yeah. the darker regions, and to me, they just seem like darker reddish ochre in our NASA photos that we have today. But to them, they looked blue-greenish. It was odd that way. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, in any case, uh, this idea was largely rejected, this idea of the canals being on Mars, largely rejected even in its own day, which we're talking the late 1800s to the early 1900s. And scientific opinion only got worse as time went on from there. 
Final confirmation came in 1965 when the Mariner 4 photographed Mars's surface and found nothing at all. Mm. However, the idea proved enticing to the imagination with its suggestion of an advanced but dying civilization of Martians capable of constructing such gigantic engineering projects, transporting water across a planet turned mostly desert, and fiction took up the idea with gusto. And it gave rise to such stories as Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom series, you know, the John Carter of Mars right. series. Mm -hmm. Other writers such as C.S. Lewis and Robert Heinlein also incorporated the theme of the canals of Mars into their works. And scientifically, although it was rejected as a theory in its own right, it certainly sparked interest in Mars and its prospects for life. And it was research into Mars that actually led to the idea of climate change and its discovery here on Earth. Hmm. Yeah. So it has had considerable influence in spite of itself. However, the canals of Mars theory was bunk. We know that now for sure, right? But it was not bunk in the sense of like a conspiracy theory or something like that. There are actually some people today who do actually still raise the flag of like canals actually being on Mars. Yeah, Stanley you... Kubrick built them for when he faked the moon landing. <laughs> so the point is you can find anything on the internet. But at the time, the scientists were not, they weren't doing this sort of theorizing. They were actually trying to do legit science and thought that they were really seeing what they said they were seeing. This is not the story of a crackpot, but of a legit group of scientists, mainly one scientist by the name of Percival Lowell, the guy we just heard from, who desperately wanted to believe, like all scientists do, that his theory was correct, but unfortunately he was just wrong. And it's a very interesting question. How could he have been so legit and yet so wrong? Because the reports of seeing these canals are not just limited to a few blurry photos with, like, X-Files music playing behind them or something, you know? They were observed by many different people, many different times, consistently across many different years. Just in the year 1895, for example, 183 distinct identifiable canals, complete with names and mapped geographical locations, were seen a total of 3,240 different times across multiple observers. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many observers, unfortunately. I don't know if it was like a thousand each or like ten each, but I, I can think of at least a half dozen named scientists that I have read in my research into this, so it was at least a half dozen observers. Plus, they also had their assistants observing, so who knows how many of them. But anyway, I don't know what number was used for this statistic. But for every observer that saw something, there were also dozens who saw nothing. And... As we now know, there just wasn't anything there, not on Mars at least, giving rise to all these observations. And that's the most interesting thing about all of this. The frailty of human perception, how can so many people be wrong in such detail? Now, the canals of Mars have been featured on science shows before. Most notably, it was in Cosmos, like the original Carl Sagan one, episode mm -hmm. 5, but I was surprised to find that there's actually very little written about this. I mean, hmm. You can find, like, articles online and stuff, but in terms of actual, like, books, I figured there'd be just loads of books out there. There's almost nothing. I had to actually go to the, like, annex sub-basement of the University of Minnesota Library and request out of the, like, deep, dark, dusty, dungeony archives, like, the actual 1906 book by Percival Lowell, and wow. I read it, all of it. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. It was very dry, it was extremely boring, as a legit scientific book tends to be. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just painstakingly establishing arguments, nothing flashy, nothing, you know... Not just... that juicy crackpot stuff. No, no, none of that. It was nothing like... Um, like that Ley Lines guy that we heard from in our Ginormous Stone Circles series way back when, Alfred Watkins, um, who made these like wild leaps of logic. Like, oh, this word sounds like this other word that the Aztecs had, so it must have been that the North American mound builders were actually the ones who came across to Europe and built Stonehenge. You know, there's nothing like that. It's just, it's like, yeah, this might not pass scientific method today by today's standards, but by 1906 standards, this was just science. So let's... Let's dig into this. And to really put ourselves in the shoes of that kind of scientist, we're going to tell this story from the perspective of Lowell. We're going to do a first-person perspective. I want everybody 
you guys, listeners, everybody, imagine that you are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. You are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. Okay. All right, you get it. We're going to um, we're going to take his perspective, and at various points in the show, you'll be asked to make decisions and come up with theories based on what you see through his telescope. And then after that, we'll see how Lowell responded to these observations and why, and then this way we'll get a better appreciation for his whole perspective. Okay? So, to get started, imagine that it is April 24th, 1894. And Mars is coming into opposition with the Earth, which basically means that Mars is on the opposite side of the Earth as the Sun, and it's about as close as Mars ever gets to the Earth, which makes it an ideal time for observation. You must not miss this chance to observe Mars. This is an era of great achievements and discoveries that you are living in, Not only is this the age of railroads and enormous engineering projects, such as the Suez Canal completed in 1869, and the Panama Canal under construction at this very moment, but it is also an age of great advances in the study of Mars. It has been discovered that Mars's features are permanent, so they are not gaseous clouds, like on Jupiter or Saturn or something, Mm -hmm. but actual surface features. Beeren Madler charted the first map of Mars, and then in 1877, just 17 years ago, it was discovered that Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos. And finally, also in 1877, an Italian astronomer named Giovanni Schiaparelli reported seeing what he called in his native Italian, canali. That's, now, a, that's a kind of noodle, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's Wait, a no. chocolatey dessert, isn't it? Take the cannolis. Yeah, cannolis. That's yes. cannoli. Oh, great! No, you brought the tenor of this down, Nick. It's <laughs> a long tubey thing, though, right? Well, yeah, but it's... and if no, there are so... cannolis on Mars, must there not have been aliens to stuff them full of chocolate? Yeah, there's life on Mars. <laughs> so what he called them in his native Italian was cannoli. This word was rendered in your English translation as canals. Now, stepping out of Lowell's perspective for a second, we know now that this is not quite a perfect translation. The Italian canali actually means channels, which may be man-made, or they may be entirely natural, like the Grand Canyon. Or dessert. Or dessert. But when you, going back to Lowell's perspective, but when you hear canali, you think canals, like the Suez, like the Panama, The thought dances in your mind that tonight, you too might add your name to the list of great observers of Mars. In the pitch dark of early morning, you button your black gentleman's cutaway coat against the chill of the desert night. You have been called to the observatory by your assistant, Andrew Ellicott Douglas, who claimed to have seen something. You better get down here and see this for yourself. You know, that kind of thing. As you rushed out here, you wondered what this something could be. Could it be Chaparelli's canals? You mount the steps to your brand new, state-of-the-art observatory, completed just this year, just in time for the opposition of Mars. You built it here on a mesa outside Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. Aha. With your own hard-earned money from six years in the cotton mill industry and a career of traveling and writing in the Far East. As well as you did in these pursuits, none of them scratched your lifelong itch for astronomy. No longer are you content to read about other astronomers' discoveries. Now your chance has finally arrived. You finally have the opportunity to make it into the astronomy books yourself. So Percival Lowell and Ellicott Douglas. Is all American science from this time this fucking waspy? <laughs> yes. I would have kind of figured, but it's still <laughs> yeah. impressive. Yeah. I mean, come on, Percival. That's, that's a bit of a long shot. Here in Arizona, at this elevation, and with the dry, clear air of the desert night, you have maximized your chance of accurate observation. 
Peering through the Earth's atmosphere is always a fraught business. You can easily get a cloudy sky that ruins all chance at seeing the red planet, but even on the clearest night, you must still deal with the blurring and wavering caused by the passage of light through the airwaves of the Earth's atmosphere. And Arizona reduces that predicament as much as any place on Earth can, but it's still a gamble. All your powers of patience and perception will be put to the test tonight. So you enter the great dome of the observatory, which resembles something midway between a water tower and the Parthenon of ancient Rome. You mount a platform on rollers, able to be moved 360 degrees around the dome, as well as upward and downward along a vertical railway track, in order to facilitate the various heights and positions you must occupy to peer into the eyepiece depending on the region of the night sky you want to observe. The telescope itself is like something out of the dreams of a mad draftsman, a mighty riveted machine like an ironclad submarine, but angled upward as if to dive not down into the ocean, but up into the depths of the heaven above. It has an 18-inch aperture, or opening, to collect light, much like the iris of a person's eye. Now, Schiaparelli's telescope was only 12 inches. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the size, it's what you do with it. <laughs> and with this improvement in technology, combined with the favorable conditions of the southwest desert, you hope to see substantially more than he did. Now, actually, a little bit of truth. I, I actually read all kinds of different factoids for how big Schiaparelli's aperture was, <laughs> from 6 inches to 22 inches. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't know. But in any case... Oh, uh, that's Schiaparelli's got a title. In any case... <laughs> The point is yours is bigger than his. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> More satisfied observers. <laughs> Consistently satisfied observers. With this great apparatus before you, you take a seat in a simple wood chair, no doubt stolen from someone's nearby patio, and you check the time on a pocket watch which you stow in your waistcoat pocket, and finally you put your gaze to the eyepiece. And here is what you see. A rust-colored disc, blurry, but, thanks to this new telescope, larger to your eyes than you have ever seen it before. What you see, at first, is already well familiar to you. Most of the surface is reddish ochre, but other parts are darker regions that you call blue-green areas, just like we were mentioning hmm. before. These regions, and other small, irregular features, process from one side of the disk to the other throughout the night as the planet rotates. Sure. Mm -hmm. As features reach the perimeter of the Martian disk, they seem to disappear, which your colleagues take as evidence of an atmosphere, obscuring them when viewed side on. Finally, at the north and south poles are white caps, polar ice caps. These caps expand and retreat with the Martian seasons. And that is the general geography of Mars as you are familiar with it and as all your colleagues are familiar with it as well. Listeners, you can see Loyal's drawings showing exactly these features in the episode post that we'll have for you at www.deadideas.net. All the images and pictures we'll be talking about in this episode, you can see them for yourselves in the episode post, so check that out. Okay, now, the image that you are seeing through this telescope is not steady. The image wavers and distorts like a dream, an effect of the airwaves as the light enters the Earth's atmosphere, as we were mentioning. Right. You must wait patiently for the image to settle, and when it does, you must be ready to immediately record what you perceive. Now, my first question for you, pretending to be Percival Lowell, is how are you going to do that? How are you going to record what you see? And I've got a multiple choice for you. Because we're on an apparatus going every which way, and... Well, you're sitting at a telescope. Okay. And you're stationary. You can move the apparatus, right? Ah, okay. So the whole platform moves with the telescope and you in the chair. Right. Throughout the dome of the and observatory. presumably you've got, like, your Igor or something that's right. got chains that's yeah, pulling you around. Very, you have to move it. Very but... Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. But um, for as, as long as you want, you can just be stationary. It's not like you have any problem there. Okay. But yeah, looking in work. Through the lens, the image that comes through the lens is what's moving. It's wavering. Right. Yeah. Okay? So, how are you going to record your observations after the split second that 
the image settles enough that you can see the detail that you want to see. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, do you, A, take a photograph of the image, B, use a tiny caliper to measure the exact distance between features on the planet's surface and then draft them onto graph paper, mm -hmm. or C, sketch as hastily as you can on blank paper what you saw just moments ago? I'd use the caliper. When you say... Okay. You say B. Camera. Do you mean like a camera obscura sort of thing? Uh, no, like a camera camera. An 1894 yeah. camera. I'm just thinking mm. 1894, your camera wouldn't be fast enough, but you wouldn't want no. to do something imprecise, as imprecise as freehanding. That's why I'm going B. Interesting thought process. <sighs> I'm going to say freehand. You're going to say freehand, so C. Okay. We are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell, but now we are in disagreement. <laughs> Did we just split the timeline? Oh, Okay, so listeners, if you chose A, take a photograph, unfortunately the technology of the day does not cooperate very well. You're mostly right, Nick. Most cameras of the time required long exposures, which is why people back then, like in the Wild West kind of photos, almost never smiled. You couldn't hold still long enough, so you'd end up with a blurry smile, and photography of Mars would suffer the same flaw. However, it is true that heat ripening of gelatin emulsions had been discovered already in 1878, and we're in 1894 here, and that gelatin emulsion process actually enabled snapshot exposures. But curiously, for whatever reason, I cannot understand Lowell does not mention this technology in his book. Um, I would guess that these early snapshots weren't detailed enough yet to be of much use, but I wasn't able to turn up exactly how, like, how fine a resolution they could get. Now, in fact, Mars was finally photographed in 1905, so after, after the narrative that we've got here, right, by O.C. Mm -hmm. Lampland. And at that time, Lowell will claim that as many as 38 canals are visible in those photographs. We'll get to look at them later at the end of this episode. Hmm. Um, but for now, back to 1894, nobody's photographed them. That's not an option. If you chose B, use a caliper to draft the exact distances between surface features, as Nick chose, you would be closer to the mark, perhaps. But even with an 18-inch aperture, the features would still be too blurry to allow any kind of exact precision. You just, how do you choose, um, you know, non-arbitrarily where the caliper should be sure. is that blurry. The image was all, would also be so fleeting that once you got them up there, it would probably already be gone. Yeah. So believe it or not, your best bet was C, like Anna chose, to sketch what you could preserve from your memory as fast as possible. For all the marvels of modern technology, that was what it ended up coming down to for Lowell. Mm. So with paper and pencil in hand, you wait with anticipation. The image dances and wavers, and then, without warning, the image suddenly settles and you behold, could it be? Why? It's just as Schiaparelli said. Here is how you will later describe it in your 1906 book. When a fairly acute-eyed observer sets himself to scan the telescopic disk of the planet in steady air, he will, after noting the dazzling contour of the white polar cap and the sharp outlines of the blue-green seas, of a sudden be made aware of a vision, as of a thread stretched somewhere from the blue-green across the orange areas of the disk. Gone as quickly as it came, he will instinctively doubt his own eye and credit to illusion what can unaccountably disappear. So, seeing that, you blink and you shake your head and you question your vision, and but despite what you do, there they are, gone as quickly as they come, but for an instant, clear as day. As fast as you can, you set them down to paper, geometric anomalies, long and straight, running across the surface of Mars. Quoting Lowell again, mm -hmm. As Schiaparelli said of them, they look to have been laid down by rule and compass. They're that straight. Now this is beyond belief for you. Nothing in nature is straight. You must have been seeing things, you think. Surely the next time you look, they will not be there. So you wait for the image to settle again, but there they are again, same as before. And again, and again, taunting you. <laughs> <laughs> we are Percival Lowell. <laughs> you make drawing after drawing that night. All the same. You will describe the experience of the viewer of such things. Convinced after three or four such showings that the vision is real, 
he will still be left wondering what and where it was, for so short and sudden are its apparitions that the locating of it is dubiously hard. It is gone each time before he has got its bearings. At last, some propitious moment will disclose its relation to well-known points, and its position be assured. He will note that each always appears in its place. Repetition in situ will convince him that these strange visitants are as real as the main markings and are as permanent as they. So after a while, you start to pick up on like, that's always next to that thing. And wait, this is consistent. Consistent right. geographical features. <clears throat> exactly. So they're not mere temporary phantoms, but real perceptions, you think. What then could they be? Still stranger do your observations become. For after many nights and weeks and months of viewing, it becomes apparent to you and others that some of the lines seem normally in the singular sometimes appear to double. So you'll actually like look at what you saw before as a single line, and then it'll be two parallel lines in that same spot. Hmm. Yeah. Bizarrely, the line appears in duplicate. As Lowell describes, it's twin lines like the rails of a railway track. And you will describe the apparition where previously a single pencil-like line joined two well-known points upon the disc, twin lines, the one, the replica of the other, stand forth in its stead. The two lines of the pair are but a short distance apart, are of the same size, of the same length, and absolutely equidistant throughout their course. It is as if a second line had in some way been mysteriously added to the first since the latter was seen some weeks before. Dude. <laughs> What if there were, like, big giant spiders on Mars? <laughs> oh! And they weave gossamer cobwebs across the surface of the planet? Oh, man. Whoa. But the spiders go dormant, and they're dormant now, and they were dormant in 1965, and the cobwebs had all dissolved, but they were there when Percival Lowell saw it. Ziggy, that's amazing. It just blew my mind. I mean, can you prove me wrong? <laughs> I'm sure that you could find that fairy argument on the internet somewhere. I'm sure that was a Doctor Who plot. Well, yeah, it probably was. So in any case, these people were seeing single lines and then later double lines. And they're like, what the F, right? So this process of doubling, which they called gemination, was first observed by Schiaparelli way back in 1879. And now you have seen it too, many times, in fact. And now surely this has to be a step too far. Here you must have lost your mind. Some effect of optics must account for this strangeness. What could it be? Here's my second point where I'm going to ask you to make a decision, and this one also is multiple choice, A, B, or C. So, what accounts for these double canals? Is it A, diplopia, or the property of seeing double when you look with one eye, because looking into the eyepiece of a telescope, right, you can right. use one eye. So is that what's causing a doubling effect? B, could it be interference caused by the lens? Or C, could it be an optical illusion? What hmm. do you think? I think diplopia would be consistent, wouldn't it? They wouldn't appear sometimes and not others. Yeah, because the other two, if it was some sort of weird re refraction of light that was a result of your lens being wrong, then it wouldn't necessarily be consistent, would it? All right. Look at Brandon's eyebrows for just one eye. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Eye. <laughs> oh, God. There's two. Oh, and the, one of them's definitely bigger than the other it one. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say diplopia as well. Okay. So you're... Oh, I was saying not diplopia because it oh, seemed gotcha. like that would be... No, I thought you were saying against the lens being wrong, the refraction there. I'm saying, I'm saying A. Okay, so Anna Diplopia. Yeah, I guess I'll... Okay, both of you yeah. A, Diplopia. That's mine. Okay. I'm Percival Lowell. <laughs> we are Percival Lowell. Uh. Okay, so what did Percival Lowell think was going on? Actually, he thought none of these. So, trick question. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. He addresses each of these objections in his 1906 book and rules each of them out in turn. Regarding diplopia, or seeing double when looking with one eye, he notes that this happens when one focuses on a point beyond the object that you are looking at, and the separation between the doubled lines will widen or narrow depending on the discrepancy in distance between 
where you're focusing and where the object is. Sure, like the magic eye thing. So like if you hold your fingers up in front of your nose and move them forward or, or backward like Nick is doing right now. Yeah, that kind of deal. The point is, in the case of the doubled lines on Mars, they always remain constant in terms of width. So as for the interference theory, this is based on the notion of light as a wave, which they knew about by then. When a wave of light passes through a lens, it presents to the viewer not a single bright line, but actually a bright band flanked by alternate dark and bright bands. Um, so there's some kind of like separating effect caused by the lens. It has been proposed that the doubled canals are dark bands surrounding a central bright band caused by lens interference. Now I have a little bit of a hard time imagining that because I looked through a lot of telescope lenses, but I think of like in a movie when you see some like panning across the horizon, you see the sun and then you get like kind of a round um, lens effect. Mm-hmm. It's something like that, but with lines. Sure. Yeah. So the objection is maybe that's what's causing these doubled canals. But Lowell points out that different apertures or lens sizes should produce different widths of these bands, but the widths of the doubled canals are idiosyncratic to themselves, staying constant regardless of the aperture that is used to view them. So it can't be that. It can't be interference by the lens. Finally, there's the idea that they might be optical illusions. And this explanation recalls something that was called the small boy theory. What? The small boy theory. <laughs> Is that a theory a small boy would have or a theory about a small boy? Uh, kind of both. Okay. Um, it refers to a study that was done with boys in the Greenwich Charity School that Anna and Nick, we reenacted this mm. in my living room before we started recording here. So we've got firsthand experience of this very study now. Uh, so what happened was they took these schoolboys from the Greenwich Charity School and seated them at various distances from a disc with small details marked within the disc. And then they told the boys, just look at the disc and draw all the details that you can see to the best of your ability. How old are the boys? I want to say like junior high or high schoolish age, the way we would classify it now. Okay, so I feel slightly better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Some small boys to Mars. Also, they were all of good vision. They all had acute vision. Okay. And one of the problems that we ran into is, like, all three of us in this room here are bespectacled geeks. Yes. And uh, you had to keep moving up closer and closer because your vision's not great. Um, So anyway, the study found that the boys who were seated at just over about 20 feet tended oftentimes to draw straight lines where no such lines were present on the disc. Hmm. So how did your drawings come out, Nick and Anna? I couldn't get it. I didn't see a point where I would see straight lines. Mm-hmm. I The second time you had me move closer, mm-hmm. I sort of saw something that was reminiscent of a line, but it wasn't a strong line at all. Yeah, for yeah. me it was very hit or miss as well, just trying to do this myself. Of course... We're tainted because we know the the topic of today is Chaos of Mars and stuff, so we're yeah. primed with the idea to either see it or not see it. But nevertheless, like I could kind of see it, I could kind of see it, but it was it was difficult. Yeah, I'm curious to do that again and try and find a spot where see if I could find a spot where the lines look straight. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's going on here? So in the case of these Greenwich boys, and maybe not so much with us, the explanation given is that. The human eye, when presented with details that are too small to distinguish clearly, the eye tends to resolve those details into lines. The implication is that the lines on Mars are actually optical illusions created by an attempt to view planetary features that are just too fine to distinguish given the current technology of the lenses you're working with. So it just gestalts those features into a line? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It gestalts them into a line. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And the doubled lines are just so much more of that same illusion under this theory. Now, Lowell responds to this, firstly, by saying, this is like saying that because a man may see stars without scanning the heavens, therefore those in the sky do not exist. So in other words, just because somebody can see canals where there aren't canals doesn't mean there aren't canals. Right. But secondly, he notes that the instructions given to the boys are not reported in the study. So there might have been some leading questions given to them. And also an attempt at replication by a guy named Flammarion failed to produce any such straight lines. 
and our replication also didn't really turn up much that you could really call straight. There were a few in Anna's that looked a little like, oh, I can kind of start to see it. It was yeah, mine. It was yeah, Anna's. mine were very, I saw very flagella-like yeah. things. Yeah, yeah Nick's were, were much more curvy and natural looking. Yeah. Finally, he says that the small boy theory presupposes that the lines are at the limits of vision, but he claims that under good atmospheric conditions, the lines seen on Mars are actually just as clear as any of the other larger, more well-recognized features of Mars' surface. So that is his response to all three of those objections that are claiming that, no, there aren't really canals on Mars. You've got to be, something else has to be going on, right? He rejects all of those explanations. And he comes to believe, you come to believe, that what you are seeing reflects real features on the surface of Mars. Okay, so you are convinced that these observations are not optical illusions or any other kind of artificial effect. So the next question then before you becomes, if these lines, let alone the strange double lines, are real features of Mars, then, well, what are those features? What's going on on the surface of Mars? What could possibly explain this? And Lowell ponders this in his book. He says, the lines cannot be rivers, which was the first explanation offered by Proctor many years ago because of their peculiar straightness. Nor can they be channels, the name given to them by Schiaparelli. Must be by 1906, somebody's pointed out the translation thing to him. Right. For here again, their geometric regularity is bar to any estuary-like hypothesis. For quite another reason, they cannot be cracks because of their uniform size throughout. So what on the surf could be so long and so straight and so large that they would be visible from 34 million miles away? By your calculations, to be visible, they would have to be miles wide. And the length of the lines across the surface is comparable to the distance from New York to San Francisco or from London to Mumbai. Oof. Yeah. Wait, the distance from New York to San Francisco is comparable to the distance from London to Mumbai? That's what I thought, that too. That blew my mind more than the rest of this. <laughs> but that's how Lowell wrote in his book. That's how he said like, it. Like, seriously, I need to look this up now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're Percival Lowell. Yeah. How, yeah. How, how many miles? What? Anyway, at this Sorry. point now... I want to open it up. So what I want you guys to do is pretend that you will, you are Lowell trying to come up with an explanation for all of this. I'm going to give you a short list of facts based on Lowell's observations. And then I want you guys to see what kind of explanations or theories that you can come up with. And just put out of your minds that we now know that there are no canals on Mars. Just concentrate on the facts as presented. And you don't have to necessarily try to come up with the same theory that Lowell came up with. But we are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. <laughs> Just what can you draw, what conclusions can you draw from the observations as seen? And you'll also, you can ask me as many questions as you want, and I will try to answer to the best of my ability based on the research I've done into this whole thing. What do you think is going on here? To help with this, I'm even going to give you some of Lowell's own drawings. Ooh. And if you make any conclusions based on these drawings, please describe them for the listeners so that we can follow along your thought process. Again, listeners, you can see these exact same drawings at www.deadideas.net. And... Hmm. Okay. So, here is the short list of observations that you have to somehow make sense of. So the straight lines appear to stretch from the polar regions across the entire surface of the planet, crisscrossing mm -hmm. like a web, proceeding through both the reddish ochre regions and the blue-green regions. Lines like these do not appear on any other planet, while lines have been observed on Venus and Mercury. Those on Venus are hazy, ill-defined, and non-uniform, while those on Mercury are broken and irregular, suggesting cracks. Neither resemble the Martian in marvelous precision." Another fact is the lines are uniform in width, as you can see, just like he said. The lines commonly intersect each other. Three, four, five, up to as many as fourteen thus make rendezvous, and it is a poor junction that cannot show at least six, he says. At the intersections of the lines, there are often small dark points or smudges. Sometimes as many as nine canals will intersect in a single dark point. Interesting. By your calculations, in order for surface features like these to be visible at this distance, they would have to be at least one mile wide, and they are more likely many miles wide, perhaps 15 to 20 miles wide, for the largest, and two to three miles for the smallest. 
the length of the canals is enormous. 2,000 miles is common, while one, which you call the Eumenides Orcus, is 3,540 miles by your calculation. Mm. And this is comparable, like I said, to the distance from those cities, mm -hmm. roughly. Okay, um, so we're almost, we've almost got all the facts here. The lines seem to appear and disappear with the seasons. Mm -hmm. Okay. Many lines normally seen in single seem to double in a process I already mentioned called gemination. And finally, the white polar caps from which many great lines proceed expand and retract with the seasons, as already noted. But when they retract, Lowell thinks he sees a border along them, which he calls a blue belt retreating with them. Hmm. Hmm. So at this point, I open it up to you. With those facts in mind, what do you think is going on? And you could ask me as many questions as you want. Hmm. So there's a blue belt along the ice caps. Mm-hmm. Lines proceed from the ice caps. Mm-hmm. Lines are between one mile and 15 miles wide. So if we are assuming life on Mars... It seems like this might be irrigated strips of vegetation. Yeah. Explain the, more about the vegetation part. I mean, there's no reason to have a canal in the sense we're thinking of full of liquid that's miles and miles and miles wide. Okay. But if there was something bringing liquid from the polar ice caps across the planet, and the entire planet was desert, mm -hmm. sort of like the way farming happened in Egypt along the Nile or something mm -hmm. like that, you would be able to have a strip of something that would be drastically different color and visible mm -hmm. up to a certain width that you'd have little irrigation tendrils going out from Interesting. your main canal. And then you'd also have a region where the area would be watered immediately, presumably outside of the poles, where you wouldn't need to go by the geometrical strips and it's just run off the blotches for a ways that you yeah, could... Yeah, natural growth. Yeah. Mm. Irregular natural growth. Hmm. Okay. Or that you could regularize in a shape that wouldn't have to be geometrical because you're not cutting a channel. It's just... Yeah, that was my point. Yeah. To mm -hmm. your point, yeah. Okay. What else do you think is going on there? We can't rule out spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, it does sound kind of a lot like irrigation canals, doesn't it? Also, to be fair, spiders like tall grass, as we figured out from our backyard. True. So. <laughs> Got a bunch of orb weavers, so yeah. Sorry, listeners, um, our house is full of spiders and there's a big one almost like the size of a quarter that's been hanging out by our front door that's made this uncomfortably yeah. wow yeah we've driven got home to us spiders <laughs> on the brain yeah yeah huge ones funnel weavers what do we what do we think the dark areas are red dark ochre areas since those are an old well-established thing is there any kind of scientific consensus on them yeah gotcha uh, yes, more or less. So at one point it was thought that the blue-green areas were seas and the reddish ochre areas were land. Right, that was mm -hmm. my first guess. Mm -hmm. But by Lowell's time, it was surmised that actually, no, they're not really seas. They are just other parts of land that's darker, much like the so-called seas on the moon. And the proof for Lowell that that's the case is that the canals run also through the blue-green ah, sure. areas. Got it. Which, unless you've got gigantic ocean bridges or something going on, you would not see any kind of features within seas. Right. But you would if they are um, like something running along a, a, a dry surface. It's kind of hard not to jump to the conclusions that Percival Lowell has, really. Okay. He looks deliberate. It looks like lines. There's a lot of weird intersections. Here's another question. Do all of the lines come from the poles? Like longitude lines, for example, if you're looking at a globe, right. all come from a pole. Are there also things like latitude lines? Um, the way Lowell describes it is lines coming from the poles, of mm -hmm. which there are many, tend to be kind of more north-southy. Right. Well, and the ones that they eventually branch out into that are more around the, the wide equator belt, tend to be more like east-westy and kind of like spider-webby. So they're more spider-webby by the equator? Yes. Broadly? So there's like north-south lines coming from the poles and then they... They filigree out. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Do they get thin? Do they get narrower as they filigree out too? 
I can't remember if he said so. I think so. I think he said Cause that. Because that would also make sense with... Yeah. You get something wide with as much... Assuming this is for liquid, liquid as possible by the poles where it's all coming from, and then... Then you channel it out to where it's needed. Yeah, and you're, you're able to get less and less and less of it mm-hmm. as it gets to the furthest out points. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what do you think the, the dark smudges inter- at the intersections of the lines might be? That... I'm just actually thinking if you draw a bunch of lines on a pencil, the more, mm-hmm. you know, if you have 14 intersections, you're going to get a smudge at the middle of them. Yeah, that kind of makes me think it's not a canal. Because that feels like a pretty obvious optical effect. Yeah. That wouldn't okay. happen if it was actual canals or water. Although the optical effect could happen even if you were looking at canals. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. So that part of it might be optical illusion. Or just a, ma- just a matter of resolution. More yeah. Than... Sure. Anything else? I don't know. What do you think, Percival Lowell? I think I am Percival Lowell. <laughs> Are you ready to hear Percival Lowell's theory? Yes. Yes. This is the first picture. We took it a week ago tonight. See, here are the indentations I told you about. They couldn't be plainer. And all going from north to south. What are they? Canals. What else? Traversing the entire planet. All right. So Lowell believes that the lines that we are seeing are caused by artificially constructed canals, but that's not actually what we're seeing. The canals themselves would be too small to see. Right. But the canals cause... Bada-bing! Vegetation to grow for miles to either side of them. That's what enables them to be seen from Earth. It's also what causes them to appear and disappear seasonally. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Right, personal uh, lull. Yeah. Uh, look at the canals. They're different. Now they reflect light like mirrors. Water reflects light. Are you saying you think those pole formations are ice? And that in, in, a, in a week, these Martians have, have melted ice caps thousands of feet high and used the water to irrigate the planet? Isn't that what the picture says? But that's impossible. The vegetation appears when the polar ice cap melts and is carried by the canals to the rest of the planet. Right. The double canals may be channels and return channels, but Lowell is unwilling to really speculate further on the doubling. He doesn't really have a... A solid explanation for exactly what's to account for that. The areas the water is carried to are desert regions, to answer your question, Anna, estimated to cover three-fifths of the planet's surface, he says. These desert areas are, however, highly populated. The dark smudges at the intersections of canals are, in his theory, centers of high population density. In other words... Cities. 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 I was wondering about that. Mm -hmm. Now you know how New York or Chicago would look if photographed from Mars. That's why the canals lead to them and intersect there. The civilization on Mars is far more advanced than ours because they are able to undertake such monumental engineering projects, but their planet is dying. Mars may once have been lush all across its regions. And in fact, Lowell thinks that the things that aren't really seas, he thinks they were at one time seas, but now they're just the dried up basins ah, of oceans. Ah, okay. And yeah. that explains, because I was wondering, this, I, I wanted to say cities, but that seemed like a weird chicken and egg thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why are there randomly cities at all these places that then they draw canals to versus you just build a city where there's a canal node, but... Right. If there are other geographic features before they needed to do the canal thing when it was oh, a more right. watered place, yeah. then you see why this made you think of climate change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the water at this point in Mars's evolution is mostly locked up in the poles. There used to be oceans, mm-hmm. and maybe the cities are scattered across the planet because at that time they had water. But the oceans all dried up, leaving the cities in the middle of deserts, and then you have to get water to them somehow from the poles. So you dig the canals. So you dig the canals and they go to the cities. Mm -hmm. The desertification of Mars is probably due to the natural evolution of planets, he thinks. In the early stages of formation, and now this is Lowell, this is not going to be exact for like actual evolution of planets, right? Mm -hmm. But in the early stages of formation, the molten insides of the planet fill up all the gaps so that water can't get in to that inside area. Therefore, the water ends up at or near the surface. Lowell calls this the terraqueous 
phase. However, as the planet cools, the surface water begins a long process of finding little cracks and seams and slowly filtering its way down from the surface toward the center of the planet. Thus, the surface water slowly drains away, causing desertification, and the planet enters its terrestrial phase. Mars seems to be at a more advanced stage in this process than our planet is, but our planet Earth is inevitably headed in the same direction. It's like having a grandstand seat for the creation of the world. Or it's death. Lowell's Martians are like future Earthlings using technology in a desperate attempt to save a dying planet. That is Lowell's theory for this. So we'll have an internal sea one day. Mm -hmm. Someday. So it's like the sort of hollow this... Earth, but not yeah. hollow. Yeah. There, there is a Star Wars planet where this happens. <laughs> is it? Utapau, yeah. The, it, <laughs> nice. the sea just basically trickles through and uh, because of the formation of rocks. and It's the planet where Kenobi fights General Grievous in the third movie. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The third movie being the third prequel? Yes. Okay. Okay. So that was Lowell's theory, Canals of Mars. Now, the last thing that we have Obi to talk Kenobi. about today, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's the Japanese variant that actually inspired the Italian cannoli. <laughs> okay, so that was civilized. Good. <laughs> so the last thing that we have to talk about before we go is how did this dead idea die? Well, Lowell remained a firm believer in the canals till the day that he died. But unfortunately, the rest of the scientific community did not share his belief. The thought of canals on Mars was panned as early as Lowell set pen to paper, and Lowell's own assistant, Douglas, remember the guy who called yeah. him in, like, you gotta see this. Faithful Douglas. Yep. He even criticized Lowell for being selective with his evidence and ended up getting fired by Lowell in 1901. Traitor Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Most in the scientific community at the time met Lowell's theory with harsh criticism, and genuine attempts to confirm his findings totally and utterly failed. Some, like E.E. E. Bernard, Eugene Antoniati, set their telescopes to the task, but failed to find anything like Lowell's canals. They just couldn't see them. Mars was finally photographed in 1905, and Lowell claims as many as 38 canals and one double canal are visible in the photos, but let me see what you think of these photos. I'm going to show you them now. Okay. You can, you can come over here. Okay. Right. Listeners, once again, remember, you can see this very image at www.deadideas.net. What do you think? Can you see any canals in those? I gotta say, there's there's smudges. It's interesting what you can see. The the polar ice caps are very well defined yeah. for the most part. Um, the Maria or whatever the black areas yeah, the, are. The blue green areas. Blue green yeah. areas are pretty well defined, and it does. What about algae blooms. Ooh, I'm not seeing any lines. It's fuzzy. I will say that it is fuzzy. Yeah, I have a hard enough time. Making out the fact that the smudgy black, presumably blue-green shapes, are permanent. Mm -hmm. Much less see tenderly spiderwebby things. It's yeah. not really conclusive one way or the other, I think. Well, to me, it, it looks pretty conclusive. Well, yeah, I conclusively don't see any lines. That doesn't mean... Right. I, but you can it also a higher say resolution, with a higher resolution. Yeah, exactly. But Percival Lowell thinks, look, here, proof positive that canals exist. And, yeah, I, I don't see shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah. So, that's that part. Others used less direct experimental methods to infer an answer. For example, Alfred Wallace Russell used spectroscopic analysis. And are you guys familiar with spectroscopic analysis? He uses um, light wavelengths? Yep, yep. So, it's one of the ways that we know what the composition of stars are, you know, distant stars, because here's the thing, they learned fairly early on, this technology was developing and getting pretty good by Lowell's time, that different elements, as light hits it, it absorbs certain wavelengths of light. So then if you capture the light bouncing off of it and separate it out with like a prism, mm -hmm. you will see some of the wavelengths are missing. There'll just be a dark band there where oh, there sure. was a colored bit of light before. And by looking at where those dark bands are and which wavelengths are absorbed, you can tell what element it was that it reflected off of. So Alfred Wallace Russell used this spectroscopic analysis to ask what exists on Mars in terms of elements. Does water exist on Mars? And what the analysis showed 
There was some early excitement. They thought they saw water at first, but after a while with debate and really going over it, they're like, no, there's, there's no water here. And moreover, Wallace also was able to show, not with the spectrographic part, but with other analysis, that the surface of Mars would actually be much, much colder than Lowell supposed, and that the idea of liquid water on the surface was just ludicrous, just right. beyond conception. Well, of course, it all seeped below. <laughs> Anything flowing through those canals would have frozen instantly, basically. So there might be ice, but there could be no flowing canals. Finally, Wallace concluded that the so-called canals were better explained as natural features, most likely being cracks and fissures intersecting at the craterlets, which is his explanation for those dark smudges mm -hmm. in between the lines. So he got around. What do you mean? Wasn't he mostly a biologist? Oh, yeah, he's also famous for co-discovering uh, evolution with Darwin, right? Yeah, and doing a lot of like tracings of kingdoms of what evolved where in Southeast Asia, I think. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so, people in those days were Renaissance men, yeah. to say the least. So if all evidence points to no canals, then the question is, what in the hell was Lowell seeing? What in the hell was everybody seeing? Because it wasn't just Lowell. And it's difficult to say. We talked about the 1903 small boy theory, the Greenwich schoolboys experiment that we reenacted ourselves. This was taken as quite damning evidence against Lowell's theory. Despite his object objections, as noted earlier, Evans and Maunder, who conducted the experiment, explain, quote, The eye inevitably sums up the details which it cannot resolve into fine lines, essentially canal-like in character. So just as you said, Anna, the eye is gestalting things that it doesn't quite know what it's looking at, and on the theory that it's better to show some detail. In other words, the origin of the lines was not in the disk of the planet, but in the nature of vision. Given the conditions, the mind made the most of the information it was taking in, guessed at its pattern, and showed the observer lines. So in other words, the observer was really seeing something. Like, they weren't imagining that their perception was something that they weren't actually perceiving. They were perceiving something, it's just the origin of that perception was in how the brain was processing the light. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Evans and Maunder sum this up quite pitifully, saying, It seems a thousand pities that all those magnificent theories of human habitation, canal construction, planetary crystallization, and the like are based upon lines which our experiments compel us to declare non-existent. But with the planet Mars still left, and the imagination unimpaired, there remains hope that a new theory no less attractive may yet be developed and on a basis more solid than mere seeming. Spiders. <laughs> Spiders. Mm -hmm. So it would seem that what Lowell and others were seeing was a combination of poorly seen natural features, optical illusion under strained vision conditions, and also suggestion, because, again, Lowell knew about Schiaparelli's reports that he thought was saying canals, canals, but that's not what Schiaparelli meant. He just meant channels, right? Cannoli. Cannoli. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How they managed to draw such voluminous detail out of that is just staggering, is mind-boggling. Yeah. But that is the frailty of human perception that we've been getting at. Now, I want to close out with a little summary of what happened to this idea after it was dead in science, but its second life that it had in fiction. Hmm. So, like I said at the beginning, despite the scientific consensus against the idea of canals on Mars, the idea had a much longer life in the world of fiction. The idea of an advanced alien civilization, I mean, it's it's ripe for mining for stories, right? Mm -hmm. It's just great. It's the idea of a dying planet and trying to save it and using all the technology at your disposal, but it's just so tragic. I mean, it's just great, right? And we can start with H.G. Wells' 1897 War of the Worlds, which didn't mention canals, but the motive of the aliens to come and conquer Earth was their planet was drying up. Their planet was dying. Mm -hmm. Then, after that, the canals really start to show up in fiction in Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom series, beginning with A Princess of Mars in 1912. Now, the world of Barsoom, depicted by Edgar Rice Burroughs, is almost entirely desert, but with waterways for irrigation with wide tracts of cultivated land around them. And there was a recent movie remake called John Carter. It didn't do very well at the box offices. I don't know if either of you saw it. No, I, I remember it coming out, but I didn't no. see it. Um, it's one of the great, the, well, Edgar Rice Burroughs' series on which it's based was one of the great early works of science fantasy, the appeal of which was to 
as much to the art as anything else, which we've ever seen it. It's like very Conan-y, pre-Conan-y, actually, um, with these voluptuous alien women and muscle-bound Conan-like men that it's, they're just nearly naked. The aliens had, like, two sets of arms, right? Yes, yes. Um, and I never quite figured out how there could be both giant, like, 12-foot green aliens with multiple, like, limbs, like, extra limbs. Spiders! And also super hot <gasps> babes. <laughs> <laughs> that are just like humans. I don't get it, but I, I just didn't read into the series that. Well, I mean, look at Earth. We have pangolins, humpbacked whales, and spiders. <laughs> Which are the super hot babes in your analogy? I'm guessing pangolins. Yes. <laughs> okay. Pangolin babes. Hashtag well, pangolin adorable. babes. Yeah. The most unexpected fictional reference to the canals of Mars that I encountered actually comes from the early Soviet theorist and rival of Lenin... Alexander Bogdanov, and he wrote a series of short novels set on Mars, including a novel named Red Star in 1908 and Engineer Mini in 1913. Hmm. You ever heard of Bogdanov? I haven't, actually. He was super into blood transfusions and did, like, really early work on that. So he liked everything red. Everything red. (laughs) Mars, blood, the Soviet Union. (laughs) Red soil, literally. So I actually read Engineer Mini, or at least tried to, because I thought it would be fun for this series, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was pretty tough to get through. Mm. The novels basically depict Martian civilization as a socialist utopia. Of course. With Mm -hmm. Engineer Mini focusing on the huge task of constructing these big canals as like this um, socialist marvel of engineering. Scientifically proven that any late-stage civilization will be a socialist utopia. These are ironclad laws of history. Also a desert. (laughs) Um, the plot largely revolves around board meetings and complicated <laughs> complicated bureaucratic intrigue and backstabbing, along with a few scenes of like weird like romance that are like, hey, do you want to have sex? Yes, let us have sex now. It was really <laughs> strange. It was like one paragraph done. Somebody didn't have enough blood in his system at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, C.S. Lewis of uh, Chronicles of Narnia fame, of course. In 1938, his Out of the Silent Planet features a desert Mars where life is only possible inside large artificial rifts where water collects. The devastation of Mars was caused in Lewis's story by the evil guardian angel of Earth in classic C.S. Lewis religious fashion. Nick's actually read these. Have you? Yeah. Out of the Silent Planet? Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, 1947, Robert Heinlein. The Green Hills of Earth, a blind poet in this story, praises the beauty of the canals of Mars as he remembers them before he went blind, but the tragic part of the story is that this blind poet is unaware that since then, people have polluted the canals so terribly with industrial waste that they're just a tragedy to behold, and he doesn't realize it. So, a comment on, you know, environmentalism at the time. 1950, Ray Bradbury, famous as well, of course, his Martian Chronicles. The canals in these stories are beautiful artificial waterways described as full of green liquors and lavender wine. Sounds Bradbury-ish. Mm-hmm. Dandelion wine? Finally, the clips we've been hearing throughout this episode comes from a 1952 black and white film called Red Planet Mars starring Peter Graves. I'm Peter Graves. <laughs> we are Percival Lowell. <laughs> Tonight on Biography, we talk about the man who discovered the canals of Mars and the spiders that ended his life. (laughs) (laughs) That ate his head off. On (laughs) A&E. Numerous other works have included the canals up to the present day, keeping the idea alive in fiction, but it is thoroughly dead in science. The final blow, as we said, came in 1965 with the Mariner 4 probe flying over Mars and snapping close-up detailed photos revealing no canals whatsoever. An attempt was made to match actual Martian surface features captured by Mariner 9 to Lowell's canals as he drew them. That attempt was made by none other than Carl Sagan and his colleague Paul Fox in 1975. Did he find that he could see them better when he was stoned? (laughs) I'm sure he did. Oh my god, there are spiders. Billions and billions. (laughs) Billions and billions of spiders across the darkness of this demon-haunted world. Billions and billions of spiders. (laughs) Maybe if we play the Mozart. (laughs) But unfortunately, uh, Sagan and Fox could only match a very small number of canals to actual features, and they are quoted as saying, 
The vast bulk of classical canals correspond neither to topographic nor to albedo features and appear to have no relation to the real Martian surface. <laughs> One thing about Lowell's ideas that may possibly have panned out, though, is the notion of water on Mars. In 2015, scientists detected something called recurring slope lineae, or RSLs, and these are long dark streaks that are most likely salt water flowing just beneath the surface, but could possibly be flows of dry granular salt. Hmm. And in 2018, just this year, the Marsis probe also used radar to detect a liquid water lake beneath a polar ice cap. Now, neither... It is hollow. <laughs> Sorry. I'm At just, least a little bit. I'm just thrown by the idea of liquid granular, or of solid granular salt flows. That's yeah. creepy. Yeah. Now, that's not There's enough a... to be, like, across the planet. It's just, like, really close up of, like, dunes, and you see, like, what are these streaks? Okay. You'd like but... to think your salt stays in one place, you though. You do. Well, I mean, you think of, like... No, I know. Long like, sand, sand and things in, does. Like the Sahara. Yeah. And if it's a different color, it'll make a different streak. So, yeah. But anyway, that's about as much as there is to say about the canals of Mars. It was not some crackpot dream, but a legit scientific theory that ended up being monumentally wrong. But it did spur interest in Mars, and incidentally, Lowell's astronomical work also eventually led to the discovery of Pluto. Because Lowell, yep. Lowell was actually obsessed with Planet X, as he called it. And he didn't find it himself, but after his death, his observatory that carried on his work did find it. Found something that was briefly planet IX, but now is no longer. <laughs> All your stuff gets discredited. <laughs> so that's it for our episode today, folks. Thank you for being on the show once again, Nick and Anna. We are Percival Lowell. We are Percival Lowell. <laughs> folks, remember, if you like what we're doing here, you can support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Dead Ideas Pod. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a 15-foot, four-armed green Martian. I was going to ask, does that count? Because it's not <laughs> historical. Exactly. It's kind of historical. But... <laughs> I mean, it's referencing a time period. Okay. And a... Yeah. The time period being 1906. Or, yeah. or, Nick, maybe I can draw you as a nearly nude Deja Thoris waiting for her John Carter to <gasps> can rescue Can I have my her? donations? Can I have my donations? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want, I will make you look awesome, I promise. All right, folks. We'll be back next time with something new. I'm not actually sure. Well, actually, I am sure. And that's going to be our final series for Dead Ideas. But I'm not going to reveal it yet. But I'll give you a hint. It is something about the ancient world of Rome. And it's going to be something you would never really expect. Something that the History Channel would never put on there. Because, you know, when you make a History Channel documentary, it's always got to be gladiators, and it's got to be so it's Julius not Hitler? Caesar, and it's got to be Hitler. Somehow time-traveled back to Rome. Oh, Hitler built the canals of Mars! Hitler, <gasps> how did we not Shit. put this together? <laughs> it's going to be from the ancient Roman Empire, and it's going to be good. And I'll leave it at that. Garum. Not Garum. Okay. okay, I don't care. <laughs> Sorry. All right, I'll see you then. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.